What's up, guys? I'm Jerry Miller, and this is the I Love Seville show on a Friday. I am grateful for your viewership and your listenership. I sincerely mean that. If you um, enjoy the program, all we ask is for you to engage with the show. And engaging with the show is as simple as liking the show on social media, hitting the like button, sharing the show, asking questions and comments. All we try to do with the program is be the water cooler of content in a 300,000-person market. We don't care where the content comes from. Whether it comes from you, the viewer or listener, and what platform it comes from, whether it originates with Judah, whether it originates with me, my wife and I are constantly talking about stuff over the breakfast table as we're doing our best to stay awake and alive with a seven-month-old who has yet to sleep. Um, She's a phenomenal sounding board and resource for the percolation of ideas. She was very much following the uh, the submarine Titan. Um, I think yeah. it's captivated not only our household, but your household and much of the country. I felt a bit demoralized and disenchanted with the Wall Street Journal report. And, and, and if anyone doesn't see that the Wall Street Journal has now become the number one media network in the globe, and that the Wall Street Journal has trumped and superseded the New York Times. I don't think you're reading the tea leaves correctly. At one time, the New York Times was the paper of record, not only for America, but you could make the argument the paper of record for the world. Um, I think that is no longer the case. The paper of record for the world in this country is the Wall Street Journal. They are true to journalistic standards and integrity, integrities that I don't think we're seeing with the Times anymore. How the New York Times has covered Joseph Biden, the president, and his son, Hunter Biden, is shameful. Absolutely shameful. We have entities, governmental entities, that are trying to legitimately cover up nefarious activity by the president's son. Extortion claims, tax fraud, Hunter utilizing his father's office for financial gain. I mean, and I can say that with confidence and conviction. And there's one media outlet that's truly covering this kind of nefarious activity, and it's the Wall Street Journal. It's not the Times anymore. Okay? And yesterday evening, I was taken aback as a subscriber of the journal Um, a report that they issued that the United States Navy knew 90 minutes to two hours after the launch of Titan this past Sunday that this submarine likely exploded, imploded. I'm not sure what the right word is, Judah. Exploded, I'll utilize. I think think probably imploded. Imploded, okay. 90 minutes to two hours after the launch, the U.S. Navy had their supersonic hearing detectors my son likes to call it binocular hearing. My son is inventing this, this device called binocular hearing, where it's binoculars meet super hearing uh, devices. And he's got all these cool gadgets now associated with binocular hearing. So I'll just use my oldest son, his term. The United States Navy has its binocular hearing, and it knew as of this past Sunday that this submarine imploded. Hmm. But that information did not get out till the journal reported it yesterday, in the evening. And when that headline passed my Twitter feed, I was, 
We'll weave you in on a two-shot, Judah Wickhauer. I To say it was floored was an understatement. I was, it was almost like I had seen a ghost. I was taken aback. I felt this entire storyline had become disingenuous. Here we are as Americans and as humans in this world, and we're following, we're riveted. We're at the edge of our seat, hoping and praying, whether you're God-fearing or, God-fearing or not, hoping and praying that the men on this submarine could be rescued or perhaps that there was hope that they could still be alive today. The reality is, on Sunday, 90 minutes to two hours after launch, the Navy likely realized, the Navy knew that, this, the, that the people on this submarine were dead. You think? You say that tongue-in-cheek or asking genuinely? Well, from what I understand, the sound they heard, I mean, you're, you're listening to the ocean. I mean, it's not like they have a uh, sound, sound travels differently underwater. And I would think that uh, while they may have had a good idea, without the proof of what they recently what what they recently found with the uh, uh, what was it the a ripped off door or something or back I don't know but with the uh, with the wreckage they found they have concrete evidence that whatever they may have thought is true and it may have been uh, jumping the gun to come out with the information before they had that definitive proof and say, oh yeah, they're gone. Okay, I'll counter that point. I'll counter that point. And this is the headline from the Wall Street Journal. The U.S. Navy heard what it believed was Titan implosion days ago. Underwater microphones designed to detect enemy submarines first detected Titan tragedy. This was Sunday, 90 minutes to two hours after the launch of this submarine. Obviously, by now you know it was looking to explore the Titanic. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eventually localize this content. And how I'm going to localize this content is in 2023, we have to keep our radar up and we have to be as vigilant as ever when interpreting the media we consume, even at the local level. And I'm going to localize this for you in a number of ways. Okay, I promise you this is going to have a Charlottesville theme. The disingenuous nature of media and how media can genuinely position an interview as an interview of a candidate when perhaps that candidate is a um, paying a consultant fee to come on a show. Okay, first let's talk about Titan. I'll give Judah the benefit of the doubt. Maybe the Navy did not know for absolute certain that Titan imploded. Okay? We do know the Navy has underwater microphones. My son calls it binocular hearing. And we do know that on Sunday, the Navy believed that Titan had imploded. Our country and our world was undoubtedly consumed by this mission, this rescue attempt, and whether or not the men on this ship were alive or dead, and whether or not they could be rescued or not. We were consumed by it. Yeah. At bare minimum, I would have loved, loved is the wrong word, I would have expected 
the headline that the journal reported yesterday that the Navy's technology is indicating this submarine imploded. That would, have been a, that would have helped us as Americans, as humans, as participants of this planet we call Earth to at least check our expectations for a rescue attempt. If the Navy on Sunday, maybe in Monday's news cycle says, here's what's going down, we as media consumers would have had our hope in a much different position. You give me that. Yeah, I don't know that it's the... I'll take it a step further. I'll take it a step further. The fact that this information was concealed, despite the Navy utilizing this information to help facilitate the rescue attempts, the Navy was able to utilize these binocular hearings... This, these supersonic microphones <coughs> to target the rescue attempt better, right? It utilized this data to target a, a circumference or radius. Yeah, a range. A range for the rescue. Right. That led to debris being found, and that's when we find out that the men are dead and the submarine imploded. Yeah. But they also they also knew where they were going and where they were coming from. But the Navy also indicated we use utilize this technology to really pinpoint the search. Yeah. So I'm going to localize this to Charlottesville in a matter of moments. And how I'm going to localize this to Charlottesville is the the need for us as media consumers to constantly be vigilant on what we read hear and watch vigilant and constantly 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 ask questions about why is this person on air why are we talking about this i'll localize it you know i'm not one for conspiracies not one for conspiracies at all but to release the news of a submarine imploding and the men on the submarine dying on the same day the president's son Hunter otherwise dominating the news cycle for his many concerning and nefarious activities mm-hmm. including ties to governmental agencies looking to protect him from those nefarious entities gives me pause and makes me think, was this a chess play or was this a media manipulation, a storyline manipulation to distract the American public away from a storyline that would have been directly tied to the White House? Now, that's conjecture. That is undoubtedly conjecture. But I'm one where there's smoke, there's fire. And if this submarine story, the death of these men on this submarine looking to explore the Titanic, if that story had not have blown up when it did, tr- pun intended or no pun? Uh, I didn't That's mean a it. sad pun. I, I didn't mean it as gallows humor. Okay. My apology. Yeah. If it hadn't have come out yesterday, the 
Hunter Biden news would have dominated the news cycle. Instead, the Hunter Biden story was a clear-cut second. It was a clear-cut second. Uh, we've got some comments. Uh, Sarah Hill uh, Baczynski said there's no reason, <clears throat> I think she agrees with you, there's no reason they couldn't have released the info that the Navy heard something that may have been the implosion. And uh, we also have some comments from Juan Sarmiento who says, uh, would you rather they report that not being definite and then turns out they were alive? As Judah stated, the debris was found that confirmed it. Um, and he also says, I don't believe it was a definite, Jerry, a possibility, but only a possibility. Only a possibility. But do we not have the right to know? Maybe right is the wrong word. Would we not like to know? Like to know? that on Sunday, the U.S. Navy had data, multiple data points, to the point that it was reporting to the White House that we believe this submarine imploded. Okay? On Sunday, the United States Navy reported to the United States White House and to Joe Biden's cabinet, Joe Biden's team, that we believe this submarine imploded. And we didn't find out until Thursday. And to SHB's point, Sarah Hill Buchensky, all we needed was, hey, the possibility. This possibly could have happened. But and if and if we were told this possibly could have happened, this is what this would have done to us. Okay, this is what this would have done. We would not have been nearly consumed with this storyline from, oh my gosh, let's hope to God these men are rescued. And I'll tell you what, you want to hear a really tough conversation I had? I was driving... But let me put it, let me, let me coin it in a different, uh, in a different way. What if, what if that announcement, <clears throat> what if that announcement, and, and I'm not, there's, there's, I've seen a lot about whether, whether or not the search was misplaced. Uh, I've seen a lot recently about uh, how, how much we care about the lives of five rich people over the lives of 300, 300 refugees uh, fleeing on a boat and drowning. And write that storyline down there about the rich people, the five rich people, versus the refugee storyline, so we should unpack that. But go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just want to make sure we cover that storyline. But the other side, I think, of announcing something like, we think they're dead, is, you know... Whether or not uh, whether or not we're right to send people after them and not sending people to help the uh, the 300 refugees who drowned, if you announce that we think the uh, the people are dead, what happens to the search? Do you, does it if there was a chance that they were still alive and I, there was a there was a Twitter I think a Twitter account that was doing a countdown of how much air they had. There left, was and. Does that then become, oh, well, we've got plenty of time. We're just looking for wreckage. And then what if they were alive? It's, I think it. Uh, Sarah Hilbuchensky says it, this. It doesn't just temper, but it, ch it changes expectations. There you go. It doesn't change the effort of the rescue, though. 
It changes if, the, if the expectations expect, if of the expectation of the rescuers is that they're not rescuing anyone and they're just looking for debris. Then yes, it no, it I no, it does. does not. I think you're marginalizing the professionalism of the rescue team by saying the rescue team would not put the same effort in if it was announced and released that the implosion happened on Sunday. But that is marginalizing the effort of professionals. But the rescue team wasn't just the rescue team were. A, more than just one group of people, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. The call went out far and wide for people to give money and help in this rescue search. It wasn't just like... Oh, Sarah Hill Buchensky, I completely agree with you. There's no reason they could not have released the info that the Navy heard something that may have imploded. I have that all over the feed. Kathy Carpenter, it's because no one trusts the national media anymore. And I actually, I tend to, I tend to agree with that. There's no reason they couldn't have released that information. Exactly. But, all they had to say was that. be aware that it would have changed expectations, and that call going out for rescuers might have... Judah, it would have only changed expectations with us who consume media. It would not have changed expectations with rescue teams. You cannot say that with conviction. You cannot say a rescue team is not going to try as hard if the U.S. Navy indicates this imploded. That's really, that's you throwing shade but, on people that risk their lives to rescue people. But we're not just talking about the Coast Guard that went out there and did their job. I believe we're talking about groups of people that banded together to go help search for these people. Nora Gaffney, welcome to the show. Cheryl Wilcombe, welcome to the show. Five states. How many of them would not have shown up? On the broadcast. Who rescued, who found out that it, the, the submarine imploded? Who found the debris? I don't, I don't have the details. Take a look. Google it. I, I, I still haven't written down the other thing about the... Uh... Check it out. Who found the debris? Viewers and listeners, who found the debris of the submarine? Take a look. We were... This is what happened. The we U.S. Got... Coast Guard, I believe. We got seduced and romanticized and bamboozled by a potential potential rescue story because for the most part as media consumers we are romantics at heart and when we watch a movie from Hollywood we want the happy ending the Rudy Rudiger getting the sack at Notre Dame the walk-on football player the last play of his career he gets a sack in South Bend. We all have that dream. We all have that level of romance in our souls. That's why we fall in love. That's why we pursue love. That's why we pursue um, cohabitation, marriage, partnership. Because we're romanticized by the dream of there's one special person that you're destined to marry and this one special person, you and, and her, and, or, or he and he, or she and she, you guys are going to have a happy ever after, forever life filled with white picket fences and children's and Labrador retrievers and playgrounds in your backyard and proms and graduation ceremonies. We all want it. We have that same mindset with this rescue attempt. If we had known on Sunday or Monday that this likely imploded thanks to the U.S. Navy supersonic here in McCanton technology, that level of romantic pursuit would have been eroded. 
the U.S. Coast Guard still would have gone balls to the wall on its rescue attempt. The Coast Guard is professional people. They would have gone balls to the wall for this rescue attempt. But us as consumers of media, we would have had our hope in checked, our, hoped, our hope better rooted in reality. And the fact that this news was released on the same day that Hunter Biden would have otherwise dominated the news cycle is a, is a point of concern. It's a point of concern. Especially when you see what the New York Times has become. And the, I, I'm picking on the New York Times because it's, it's a shadow of its former self. The Times is a newspaper that is undoubtedly consumed with its power connections with the, the old guard established Democratic Party. And us as consumers are starting to realize that and our trust for the Times has whittled like a number two pencil of the, after the SATs. And that's why the Wall Street Journal has positioned itself as the paper of record for the globe. Who broke the news about the Navy knowing about this on Sunday? It wasn't the Times. It was the Journal. Who's holding Hunter Biden and Joe Biden accountable? It's not the Times. It's the Journal. I'm going to localize this here in a matter of moments. And, I, and, I, and I'm going to localize this by even including myself in the mix. When you consume media today, and I'm talking viewers and listeners, I'm talking you, I'm talking me, I'm talking my wife, hell, I'm, talk, I'm talking my son. I had on a way, my, I was dropping my kid off to a sports camp yesterday. This is before the news broke about this is likely, this imploded on Sunday. And my son, who's five years old, said, Daddy, are the men in the submarine dead or alive? And I said to my son, I don't know. I don't know if they're dead or alive. And his follow-up question, you know what his follow-up question was? This is a five-year-old. Daddy, will God give these men a second shot at life? Wow. I'm driving in my car down Pantops from Keswick to camp in town, and my five-year-old in his car seat directly behind me as I'm looking at him through the rearview mirror driving asks me, Daddy, will God give these men a second shot at life? It took every ounce of my emotional control to not start bawling because I know he's literally looking at me through the rearview mirror, and he can see my face. I, you know what I said? I don't know, son. Yeah. I'm not sure if God is going to give them a second shot at life. But I do know that God has a plan for all of us. And maybe if they're not alive today or they're not alive tomorrow, that is part of God's plan. And then he followed up. This shows you a five-year-old. That question is as deep as you can get, right? And then he follows up the question by saying, Daddy, which cloud in the sky is God? Oh, man. Which cloud in the sky is God? It just shows you a five-year-old, like, 
different levels of thinking. And I said, God is everywhere. It's not just one cloud in the sky. Yeah. God is ubiquitous. I didn't say ubiquitous. I said he's everywhere around us. Mm-hmm. But when he said, will God, give us a sec- will God give these men a second shot at life? You know what I would have much rather been prepared for with that question? Reading in the, reading in the national media on Monday that the submarine imploded and the men were likely dead. Yeah. Because I probably could have answered the question like, son, the Navy that protects our freedom told us that these men probably are not alive. And that was part of God's plan. I would have been better equipped as a father to answer a question from a five-year-old who I cherish and love. And I'm going to make this, I'm going to localize this and make sure you bring up the storyline of, of, of wealthy guys on a ship, one of them a billionaire, and the attempt that consumed the world to rescue, was it five wealthy guys? Mm-hmm. Five guys, right? As opposed to that same momentum and that same worldly captivation, why is it not following the rescue attempt of refugees? Okay? Yeah. We should talk about that. We should unpack that. I'm going to try to localize this to Charlottesville. I've been working in media since 2002. I worked as a stringer, which is like a part-time writer for the Daily Progress, my rising third year at UVA. And check out the framing if you could. I've, I've gotten a little more relaxed than where I'm sitting here. Evidently, I've gotten a little more relaxed in my attire as well on a fun Friday. My wife gave me a little, uh, a little ribbing for this attire. Fortunately, the boss is a very likable guy who's very relaxed in the clothing we're, we're allowed to wear here around I Love Seville. I've been working in media since 2002. Daily Progress and then um, Clear Channel, what is now Monticello Media. It used to be Clear Channel Communications. So I'm a rising third year, and I'm writing um, newspaper stories for Jerry Hootie Ratcliffe in the sports department. I'm getting paid $30 per article, plus getting reimbursed mileage. And I'm doing a one-hour talk show on Saturday mornings from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. on 1400 WKAV, which was owned by Clear Channel Communications before Monticello Media took it over. Eventually, that talk show, eventually a, a, a 21, not even 21-year-old, on Sports Radio 1400, took a one-hour talk show and turned it into a syndicated talk show that was five days a week in three states, Virginia, North Carolina, West Virginia, across 12 ESPN affiliates, and that was called The Jerry Miller Show. Also parlayed that into two TV shows at NBC 29, Saturdays from 12 p.m., to 12.30, and Sundays from 12 p.m. to 12.30. Media is my background. 21 years of doing this. And now this, what we're doing here is media. In today's age, probably more so than ever, the ability for you to trust media 
should be a point of concern for all media consumers. All media consumers should question the media they consume. What is the agenda? What is the motive? What is the goal? And the first goal of any media creation, the first goal of any network that creates media is to captivate eyeballs and attention. Because if you can captivate eyeballs, people, and if you can hold attention, then you have currency, a currency that you can leverage into influence, into profits, into network. And by network, I mean expanding your sphere of connection. So the first job of any media creator is to captivate attention and hold it. Because that's currency if you can do it. And once you can captivate attention and hold it, then you can take that attention and you can mold it as you see fit. Maybe you mold it by sending that viewership, listenership, and readership to your advertisers and their call to action messages. Maybe you take that viewership, that listenership, that readership, and you monetize it with a paywall subscription. New York Times, Daily Progress, they have a paywall online. Maybe you take that media attention from viewership, listenership, and readership and utilize it for political campaign purposes, getting into office, getting yourself elected into office. Maybe you take that viewership, that listenership, that readership, and you utilize it to fill office spaces in the Macklin Building on Market Street. Maybe you take that viewership, that listenership, that readership, and you utilize it to meet payroll for Judah B. Wickhauer and yours truly, Jerry Miller. Maybe you take that viewership, that readership, that listenership, and you utilize it as a leverage tool with power players in the community. Always ask yourself, what is the MO of the media creation? I'm going to localize this even more. Before Real Talk with Keith Smith this morning, Judah, did you see a man come up to the door? Yeah. <clears throat> and what happened? You don't have to, I, I, you know, I don't think you know who the man is. Uh, I don't know who he is. <clears throat> you went out to talk to him. Uh, what happened? What, it's just what you saw. I mean, that was pretty much it. I think I heard the name of... Uh, uh, don't okay. use names. All right. Well, I think I heard a name. That's about it. I mean, I was doing other things. Okay. So what happened? A man came to me... And talked to you. And said, I need to talk to you. I stepped outside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation. This literally happens every day to me. Whether it's through direct messages, emails, text messages, phone calls, in person. I don't really like the in person, but this particular individual knows he can drop by in person often because he's as connected with Charlottesville and Central Virginia as just about anyone I know, and he's watching and listening to this show right now. So he says, Jerry, I listened to your show yesterday. He listens to our show regularly. 
And this guy is, it's not deep throat. It's not deep throat. But this guy who stopped by has the inner workings of City Hall, the inner workings of Almore County office building, inner workings of the jail system, the police department. Dude is connected, like effing connected. And he says, Jerry, you're missing a point here from yesterday's show. You brought up the Whitehall candidate for the Admiral County Board of Supervisors and the roughly $2,700 that she kicked to Rob for consulting fees for her, her campaign for, for, excuse me, excuse me, I need to start over again. Jerry, you mentioned yesterday the Admiral School Board candidate, school board candidate, school board candidate, and the $2,700 that she kicked to Rob Schilling for consulting fees for her push to get on the school board in the Whitehall District. He then says to me, take a deeper dive into this. Are the consulting fees strictly for consulting on platforms and campaigns? Or is it Actually getting a communication here from an extremely heavy hitter. Holy crap. Wait a second. Damn. Whoa. <laughs> okay. 10-4. Uh, I need to digest that information before I bring this up on air. Good God. I'm at a loss. <laughs> All right. Um, he says to me, he goes, or is it, is it a quid pro quo? Where it's consultation... and also come on air. Then this particular individual says, this has been going on for a super long time. Well, perhaps conservative candidates have been consulting fees for airtime. And look, I understand that you scratch my back, I scratch your back. That's part of business. But when it starts including campaign finance, fundraising dollars for campaigns, that gets into a different level of sketchiness. Mm -hmm. Because that's average Joe and average Sally donating their hard-earned money to candidate campaigns for the purpose of up and up, above board strategies to win office. Yeah. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll tie this to Amy Lawfer, and, and we may need to start rotating some lower thirds. 
How many people that donated to the Amy Lawfer campaign would have not donated to the Amy Lawfer campaign if they had known Amy Lawfer was going to use mudslinging through direct mail about Callan Squire? I would bet a large chunk of people, if they had known that Amy Lawfer was going to use their campaign donation dollars to create multiple direct mail campaigns and television ads attacking Kellen Squire's stance on abortion in disingenuous fashion, I would bet many of the people that donated to Lawfer's campaign would have then said, no way, Jose, I'm not going to give you that money. I don't believe in those mudslinging tactics. Taking money from everyday Sally's and everyday Joe's, hard-earned money, money that can be used to pay credit card bills and money that can be used to pay mortgages and rent and put food on the table during times of incredible inflation, times of incredible hardship, times when credit card debt is an all-time high. There's a tremendous responsibility that comes with the allocation of those dollars. So much so that laws... Laws are written around campaign finance. Mm -hmm. Always, when you consume your media, ask what's the mission of the, of the media that's being produced. What's the MO? Because there's always one. And the first mission, grab the attention and keep it because that's a currency. The second mission is once you have the attention and you can keep it, how is that attention that's being kept being utilized? Is it being utilized through a paywall? Is it being utilized to send viewers, listeners, and readers to an advertiser's call to action message? Is it being utilized to further the sphere of influence for the media producer. Oftentimes, it's all of the above. The Daily Progress ran a story about Sally Hudson. And the Daily Progress asked the question, did Sally Hudson make a mistake? Did Sally Hudson make a, make a mistake challenging one of the most institutional politicians in the Commonwealth, a blue dog Democrat that has had decades of service? That was the premise of the Daily Progress article. The article quoted David Toscano, quoted a, uh, media, um, a politics professor, from uh, um, uh, in-state university. And then asked the question, did Sally err and not just staying in the House and waiting her turn in the state Senate because now Sally has a blemish on her record? And my politics are extremely different from Sally's. Sally is a socialist, a socialist, a socialist, and you can't argue about that. I'm not, I, I have a hard time labeling my politics. I'm not even sure I'm a libertarian. Uh, 
My politics are of tiny government. My politics are, don't tell me what I can do, government. Don't tell me who I can sleep with, government. Don't tell me who I can marry, government. Don't tell a woman what she can do with her reproduction and abortion, government. Don't tell me what I can smoke and what I can't smoke, government. Stop taxing me to the clip you're taxing me, government. Find different ways for incremental revenue, government. I believe in tiny government, and I believe in the empowerment of a person's rights. Their right to choose how they go about life within the framework of our law system, our system of laws. And as long as we as individuals abide by the code that we call law, my choice, my belief, is we should be able to do what we want to do. Very different from Sally's. Very different. But to make the statement that Sally Hudson aired, and let me see if I can find the total. And viewers and listeners, we'll get to your comments. Judy, you aggregate those comments. Check LinkedIn, check Twitter. I mean, the show is hot right now. God, I love you guys. I love you guys. I love you guys. I genuinely love connecting with you guys. For the Daily Progress to say that Sally Hudson made a mistake challenging Cree deeds, that's bogus, man. Sally Hudson lost to Cree deeds, Judah, 13,344 votes for Cree, 12,795 for, Sal, for Sally. 1344, 13, excuse me, 13,344 minus 12,795 is a vote delta of 549 votes. We had, ladies and gentlemen, remember the number 549, please, sir. We had 13,344 for Cree. And 12,795 for Sally. We had a vote count of 26,139 people, Judah. 26,139. What was the number? I don't know. You already forgot the number? <laughs> yeah. I literally... It's just numbers going through, going through my head. I know. The, the, the numbers aren't the memory strength. Uh, it's not numbers. It's, the, it's, it's I numbers. I need to see them. I know. It's numbers. No. Twelve. The fact that I need to see them. Twelve years. <laughs> Thirteen three four four minus twelve seven nine five is five forty nine. Five forty nine. Should, we should write that down. Five forty nine, please. Okay, five forty nine. Sally lost by five hundred and forty nine votes. She didn't make a mistake. She showed voters in Charlottesville and Nelson County and Amherst County that a blue dog Democrat doesn't have the stranglehold we thought an institution once had. And she proved to voters in Charlottesville and Nelson and Amherst County that maybe an ideology of socialism is much more present, an ideology of progressivism is much more relevant than we ever thought it would be. She lost by how many votes? 549. Yeah. 549 votes. 
Sally did not make a mistake. She did not make a mistake. If anything, Sally earned political capital. And if anyone thinks that Cree, choosing my words carefully here. If anyone thinks that Cree has the momentum potentially for more campaigns after this term is up, I would question and challenge that thought. Now let's talk Katrina Coulson. Let's talk uh, Dave Norris, and let's talk Bellamy Brown. Dave Norris, are you watching? Katrina Coulson, are you watching? Bellamy Brown, are you watching? Let's talk political science. On paper, Katrina Coulson wins big. 5,695 votes for Katrina. Second place, Dave Norris, 4,188. That's a hell of a delta. Bellamy Brown, 2,341 votes. So the delta between Katrina, 5,695, and Dave, 4,118, is 1,577 votes. That's a boatload. And the delta between Katrina, 5,695, and Bellamy, 2,341, is 3,354 votes. That's an even larger delta. But let's dig into what happened. Let's dig into what happened. There is not a doubt in my mind that Dave Norris and Bellamy Brown were their own worst enemies in this race. Bellamy and Dave chopped up the vote. They competed against each other, which propelled Katrina to victory. Dave and Bellamy split their base, and their base very different than Katrina's. If Dave and Bellamy had forged a political allegiance or alliance and said, one of us needs to step out of this race, or Katrina's definitely going to win, I'd be willing to wager that this vote count would be very, 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 very different. Very different. Let's just count votes. I'm talking political science here. This is me talking here. Katrina had the backing of Sonia Smith, the kingmaker. Dave and Bellamy did not. Sonia Smith's financial backing is huge. Michael Bill's financial backing is huge. The Clean Virginia PAC, its financial backing is huge. In fact, I put this on Twitter. Let me see if I can find it. The 2022-2023 election cycle. 2022 2023 election cycle, Michael Bills, Sonia, Michael Bills and Sonia Smith are married, by the way. Michael Bills donated $7,500,000 to candidates and committees. Or excuse me, to candidates. Michael Bills, $7,500,000. Dominion Energy, yes, that Dominion Energy from Richmond donated $6,891,000. So ladies and gentlemen, Michael Bills alone donated 
over $600,000 more than Dominion Energy. Michael Bills' PAC, the Clean Virginia Fund, donated $5,200,000. That means Michael Bills' Political Action Committee donated 5.2 to Dominion Energy 6.8. Combined, Michael Bills donated $12,700,000 to candidates in the 2022-2023 election cycle. That means Michael Bills and his PAC donated roughly 2x the money that Dominion Energy did. Michael Bills' household, Sonia Smith, his better half, donated $2,100,000. One household of Michael Bills and Sonia Smith, Judah, can you get your calculator out on your phone and, do, and crunch this math? These numbers are so high, I legitimately need a calculator here. Tell me when you're ready. Michael Bills, you ready to rock? Okay. Seven million five hundred thousand plus Clean Virginia Fund, five million two hundred thousand eight twenty four. Five million two hundred thousand eight twenty four. Wait, what am I doing with these numbers? You're adding them up. Okay. All right, I can do it. Let me do it. I'm going to open up the calculator on my computer. Just add basic arithmetic here. Seven million five hundred thousand plus five million. 200,000, 824, plus Sonia Smith's 2,094,599. Michael Bills and Sonia Smith and the Clean Virginia Fund donated 14,795,423 dollars. For the sake of conversation, let's call that 15 million dollars. Two people, 15 million dollars, 2022-2023 election. Dominion Energy, for the sake of conversation, will round up to 7 million. Their exact number was 6,891,655. Michael Bills and Sonia Smith more than 2x'd a publicly traded company, Dominion Energy. We talk about campaign finance reform in Virginia as it applies to Dominion Energy, yet we don't talk campaign finance reform as it applies to Michael Bills and Sonia Smith and basically $15 million of donation in one election cycle. Now, I put this on Twitter. Elliot Harding made a very good point. Elliot, are you watching? He's an Esquire. He follows politics as closely as I do. Elliot Harding said, one of them is subsidized and empowered by the state of Virginia, and he's talking Dominion, and that is a very good point. That is a very good point, Esquire Harding. It's a fair point. Two people are more than 2xing what a publicly traded company is doing with influencing politics. And that publicly traded company, Dominion, is lambasted, not lambasted, lambasted and scarlet lettered 
by Virginia media, by Commonwealth media, by regional media, by national media. Dominion Energy is the devil when it comes to the national media, the Commonwealth media, and us as people questioning how it is influencing politics. Yet that same media, local media, that same media, regional media, that same media, national media, the same consumers of that media, yours truly, Judah, and viewers and listeners, we do not lambaste, we do not scarlet letter, Michael Bills and Sonia Smith, despite having over 2x the influence financial in this election cycle. Explain to me why that is. Why is that? Why does the local media, why does the regional media, why does the Daily Progress, NBC 29, CBS 19, Seville Weekly, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the Roanoke Times, the, what's the Bristol? Is it the Bristol Courier? Is it the Bristol Herald? The Bristol Herald Courier? You name it. Why do they not hold Bills and Smith at the same accountability clip as Dominion? Despite Bills and Smith 2xing plus what Dominion does. Explain that to me. What's the media's MO? What's the media's mission? The media knows Dominion's an easy attack. Why is it easy to attack Dominion? Because it's an effing monopoly. And the media realizes that Dominion is hated by all its readers and its viewers and listeners. And the media doesn't hold Bills and Smith accountable like I'm doing right now. Give me one media platform that holds Bills and Smith accountable like I'm doing right now besides me. Give me one. Give me one. I can't think of a single one. Can you? Why? Because Bills and Smith are billionaires who have influence and leverage over other billionaires, over other hundred millionaires, over other ten millionaires, over other individual millionaires, over other, other upper middle class people, and their respective businesses and brands that advertise in their media platforms. You can go after Dominion, it's a monopoly. It's an easy target. But don't go after Michael Bills and Sonia Smith because their network of influence is far-reaching and will undoubtedly impact the media network's bottom line. can't trust it. You shouldn't trust it. You should consume it, but you should ask questions. Connie Sylvester asked a question. Connie Sylvester put on one of our 15 Facebook pages this show airs on. Jerry, what is your MO with Rob Schilling and why are you going after him? You got a mission. That's what she asked. And I said, Connie, I responded to her comment. 
Thank you for watching the show. I got no beef with Rob. No beef with Rob personally. But I got beef with his tactics. And as a father of a kid that could have been in Johnson Elementary School as a kindergartner, I saw the video through the lens of being a daddy. And as someone who's a daddy, who gets emotional just about anything that involves our boys, I put myself in the shoes of the parents the parents who saw their kids go viral on Fox News and on extremely right-wing websites like The Daily Caller. And as I put myself in the shoes of these parents, I got emotional. Just like as I'm driving from Keswick down Pantops to sports camp and my son asked me the question, Daddy, Will God give these men a second chance at life? I'm grabbing the steering wheel at like 10 and 2. <laughs> Seeing my kid look at me through the rearview mirror and knowing that I cannot, I gotta be strong. And I think in that moment, why is a five-year-old having such heavy thoughts? Why is my five-year-old kid asking me, is God going to give these men a second shot at life? And I thought about these parents, these parents in this, that have their kids in this video and... And I'm sure they were asking questions like, is our kid safe? Is he okay? Is she okay? Should we pull him from school? What do we do? Who do we contact? We're scared and we're afraid and we don't know what to do. And that made me sad. It made me sad for them. And once I was able to navigate this emotion, these emotions of sadness, I felt compelled to utilize our influence, which is vast, to stand up for the parents. who may not have the platform and influence that we do. So it's not a mission. It's not an MO. Well, hell, maybe it is. I guess it is. My mission and my MO with our commentary when it came to the choices Rob made 
was to stand up for the underdog. And the underdog was a group of parents that were left feeling helpless. And if you're a mom or dad, there is no worse feeling than feeling helpless when it comes to your kids. No worse feeling. Because your goal and your role is to protect them. And when that protection gets taken out of your hands, you feel helpless. And you feel scared. And that's what Rob did to a group of people. And that's why I talk about it today. So yes, Connie, and I mean this, ma'am, in the most respectful way possible. You're a friend of Judah's. You watch this show. I'm by no means throwing shade at you. I'm so very grateful for you to watch this program. Thank you for watching this show. But my MO and my mission was to stand up for the underdog. And my hope after this show is you realize that media always will have a mission or an MO. And some of those MOs will be genuine and backed by journalistic standards and integrity. And some of those MOs will not be. Oh, so heavy. God. When it comes to the Katrina Coulson and Dave Norris and Bellamy Brown race, I think the race was a lot closer than you may have thought. Katrina had 5,695 votes. If either Dave or Bellamy ran and only one of them ran, I think you could combine a lot of their vote total. And if you combine Dave's vote total with Bellamy's vote total, you have 6,000, call it 6,500 votes. And yes, not every 6,500 vote would have gone to one man, Dave or Bellamy. But Dave and Bellamy's base, the city of Charlottesville, was the polar opposite of Katrina's base. When Dave and Bellamy chose to run in this race together, they basically propelled Katrina Coulson to victory. And Katrina, I'm not throwing shade or marginalizing you. You won the categories that matter. You out-fundraised Dave and Bellamy, and you beat them in the booth. And now you're 2-0. and You've won a school board seat, 
and now you're in the House of Delegates in Richmond. And your future is so effing bright, Katrina. Yale undergraduate degree, UVA law school degree, school board candidate navigating a school system through the pandemic, collective bargaining navigating through that. You want a spot on your first try in Richmond with the House of Delegates? Katrina Coulson is going to challenge maybe Bob Good in Congress. That's the next stepping stone for Coulson, a congressional race. And you take someone that has got a school board chairwoman on her resume, navigating a school system through the pandemic. You got someone with a law degree from UVA who works for the city of Charlottesville, an undergraduate degree from Yale, someone who's mixed race. Let's cut to the chase. Mixed race is an edge. And that's as frank as Frank gets, but that's an edge. And if you don't think that's an edge, you're not in touch with 2023's reality. Katrina Coulson shows great on camera, great in photos. She shows well. She's got a lot of stuff going for her. She's damn good at fundraising. And she's got Sonia Smith in her hip pocket. Congressional race. Mark it down. Challenge Bob Good. And I would bet you there's a lot of voters that would connect much more with Coulson than they do Good. She knew how to play the game, and she played it well. And from a city council standpoint, and we'll get to your comments here, guys. From a city council standpoint, the fact that Nat Natalie Oshrin came in first place in pretty dominating fashion, and the fact that Michael Payne came in second place in pretty dominating fashion. And the fact that Lloyd Snook came in third place and Big Ball's Bobby Fenwick came in last place, it undoubtedly shows you Charlottesville City is super progressive and damn near socialistic in its overall ideology. And some of the cause and effect of that progressiveness and that socialistic ideology, ladies and gentlemen, is going to be upzoning in totality. Lloyd was the only one on council showing lukewarm tendencies to upzoning in totality. He just came in third place, and he realizes he's very much in the minority now. And whether he wants to admit this or not, and he will not admit this on the record, I've asked him this on my show. Lloyd Snook cares about his legacy in this community. His mindset is now shifted from lukewarm with upzoning to going with the flow with his four other contemporaries on the dais. Upzoning reality. I've said it once, I'll say it again. 
the HOA neighborhoods in the city, in the urban ring, and in Albemarle County are going to pop in value because of upzoning. And I'll say it once and I'll say it again. City of Charlottesville residents, if you're concerned about upzoning and your neighbors are as well, my advice to you is to quickly organize, very quickly organize, and form an HOA that will supersede upzoning policy. Because if you don't have that, you got density, literally, that can happen next door. Had the conversation with this about Rory Stolzenberg, one of the planning commissioners, on Twitter about this. Sounds like Rory's appointed to another term on the commission. You got a commission that is as strongly in favor for upzoning and massive density as any commission I've ever seen. To the point where they're talking about a nine-story apartment building at the site of the truest bank on Ivy Road next to Foods of All Nations and Moe's Barbecue. If you want to respond to all the comments on the comment section, that would be appreciated. And then we'll get in about five or ten minutes you reading the comments on the pages we've targeted. The viewers and listeners, they, they should get a response to the, to the effort they've put in. And I want to read every single one. I'm all for people having a chance to live in Charlottesville. And I understand we need houses for people to have a chance to live in Charlottesville. I get that. But putting infrastructure and putting schools and roads and quality of life on the way back burner behind density is a mistake. Because when you do that, the charm that we love in this town we call Charlottesville will be very quickly eroded away. And as density and upzoning breeds more people Landlords will follow with increased rents to the point only big box brands can afford to open and operate in a 10.2 square mile city. And like that, Charlottesville's charm is eroded away. And if you want an example of what I'm talking about, I encourage you to take a walk up and down the University of Virginia corner. I've been in this town for 23 years. When I first arrived here in August of 2000 as a first year, I would patronize the University of Virginia corner with a fake ID me and my buddies made in Dabney 101, old dorms at UVA, right off Bonnie Castle Circle. We bought laminate paper, gold paint, a laminator, exacto knives, and we made damn good fake New Jersey IDs. And as 18 and 19 year olds, we were going to every bar on the UVA corner, every restaurant. And there was not a single chain on the corner. In fact, the only one that could be even symbolic of a chain was Plan 9 Records. And I think Plan 9 Records had a location on Route 29, a location on the corner, and maybe a location in Richmond. I want a chain. 
That wouldn't chain at all. We'd go to the College Inn for chicken parm subs and meatball subs and cheesecake. We'd go to Gumby's Pizza for pokey sticks. We'd go to Little John's for ranch hands, Ralph Sampson subs for the nuclear. We'd go to the Virginian for their mac and cheese, for the Biltmore for $2 pitcher night, for Martens for mug night. We'd go to Baja Bean to sing karaoke. We'd go to Orbit to shoot pool and buy things we probably shouldn't have purchased. We'd go to Coupe de Ville's to hear Benny Dodd sing on Tuesday night as beautiful girls were singing along in cowboy boots and super short skirts. We'd go to Buddhist Biker Bar for $5 steak and potatoes on Monday evening. Take it away sandwich shop for bread ends and house sauce. We'd go to the White Spot for Gus burgers and fries and food of substance to keep the hangover from being so stiff the next morning. You go to the corner now and you see Chipotle and Raisin Cane's. You see Starbucks. You see Coupe de Ville's can't stay open. St. Martin's is an afterthought. Little John's. God, whoever would have thought Little John's would have gone out of business. Whoever thought Michael's Bistro would go out of business? You hear the locally owned restaurants and bars on the corner, they reach out to me and they say, Jerry, we're barely hanging on and we're not sure how much longer we're going to stay open and whether it's worth it anymore. Look at the corner for a microcosm of what a charm-less city could represent. Why don't we pull that lower third down, if we could, please. I don't want a charmless city that's indicative of Main Street everywhere. I want a charm-filled city that's reflective of a town I love. We'll get to some comments. Let's get to LinkedIn. John Blair says, Jerry Miller, 
I agree with you about the Wall Street Journal. My wife is very liberal. liberal. However, she thinks the Wall Street Journal is the best source of news in America. Obviously, she does not agree with their editorial pages. Without getting into bias, I think the Wall Street Journal's choice of stories and what to cover is more reflective of America than the New York Times. Wall Street Journal's stories include business, economics, consumer affairs, in addition to culture, politics, human interest, while the New York Times' choice of stories is almost solely on politics and culture nowadays. I hope you and Judah Wickhauer have a great weekend. Thank you for watching, JV. We very much appreciate you. Let's go to Twitter. Ginny Hu. She's watching on Twitter. She says, you are right. We have the right to ask those questions. And the government media have done nothing to keep our trust. So why should we not wonder? I'm going to respond to that tweet by saying, amen. And I read this live on air. She sends two other tweets. The U.S. Ghost Card found the debris. She also says, I think we also need to look at the root calls. If indoctrination had, had not been happening, there would be no video to share. That's fair. That is fair. And I believe elementary age students, some as young as first, second, and third grade, should not be learning about sexuality. And I know a lot of people may agree or disagree with me, but that's my take as someone who is the father of an elementary age student. Deep Throat, via DMs, he said the Navy knew immediately. One of the things to consider, they did not want to give away how good their, their acoustic surveillance system is. Deep Throat also says, man, someday I should share with you my experience in the gas industry in Ukraine, including problems with... See, I don't know anything about global politics. Slovesky? So obvious this is influence peddling. On the submarine, he said, my son was obsessed with it. He read about it on day two. Obviously, it imploded. Just go through the logic. The media keeps this story alive because it attracts eyeballs. People look like crazy for Malaysia, the pl for the Malaysia plane, even after everyone was obviously already dead. The important players absolutely would have kept looking. That's a reference to you, Judah, with the U.S. Coast Guard, that there's no they would undoubtedly would have gone balls to the wall with their effort. And he says, in regards to Sally Hudson, it's not a mistake. She has an unquestionable ambition. People like that always look for the next step. I wonder how weird she feels taking money essentially made by uber capitalist Julian Robertson. Bills made his bones as COO of Tiger Management in the 1990s. Any comments that you would like to highlight on today's program, Judah? Oh, man. Let's see. <clears throat> uh, 
Vanessa Parkhill said it's good that Sally Hudson ran. I respect any candidate who is willing to step into the ring and put their ideas out there. The real winner when that happens is the voting public. It makes all the candidates better. I think that's a good take. Okay. Anyone, anyone else you want to highlight? Uh, let's see. She also says she, uh, she has an idea that could lay the foundation for a campaign finance reform proposal. Cap spending. Stop, tr stop trying to limit contributions because too many people say it limits their right to freedom of speech. Putting a cap on spending should help to eliminate some of the barriers to entry resulting in more candidates from a variety of backgrounds. It also should pull the rug from under those who wield so much power with their wallets. It would also save us from endless TV ads and mailings. Thank goodness. I'm all for it. Not that I watch TV anymore. Um, let's see. With such things. heavy hitters influencing people getting into office, is it truly democracy? If Bills and Smith and their PAC can do 15 mil and Dominion Energy is less than 7 million, is it truly democracy? Are Bills and his PAC and Sonia Smith Do they determine who gets in office? And if so, is that truly democracy? I ask that for you to consider. Anything else? Scott Aaronworth in Virginia Beach, I love Mincers as well. In fact, Mark Mincer, rest in power, lives, his family lives in my neighborhood. I was uh, going to play in a poker game with Mr. Mincer, but that did not transpire because he got sick. Anything else you'd like to emphasize there, Judah? Uh, no, I think we're good. It's 2 o'clock. The viewers and listeners go out of their way to put comments in the comment section with the expectation they will be read on air. Okay. I so I'd like, to, I'd like to do well by our viewers and listeners, please. Oh, we've got some by Al <coughs> Albert Graves. Yes. Uh, let's see. Um, <clears throat> even though the Navy had heard the Im heard an implosion on Sunday on their sonar, they still had to verify and view the wreckage before they could make the call 110% that it was indeed a catastrophic ending for the crew aboard the Titan. Uh, he says about Sally, <laughs> Sally said, scared money don't make money. Um, maybe there should be a cap on political donations like the salary cap on the NFL so there can't be a monetary windfall to one candidate or another to influence the polit political landscape that would be nice he also says that he would be uh, PO'd about his kids being videotaped but he'd be even more pissed that his kids are being indoctrinated and taught something that his religion and beliefs don't align with He'd feel hopeless now on what his kids are being taught in public schools and how safe they, they are really. And uh, he also said, uh, money runs the political landscape these days. That's why these candidates don't want to have debates anymore. They are irrelevant. It's all about the money and who has the most. Yep. It's not democracy. It's about fundraising. 
Who can raise the most money? And if you can do that, you got an edge. It's an emotional edition of the I Love Sevil show on a Friday. We legitimately went 90 minutes straight without commercial break and without taking a sip of iced coffee. There's not a broadcaster in this 300,000 person market that does this. For Judah Wickhauer, my name is Jerry Miller, and this is the I Love Seville Show. <laughs>